The high-profile hacking of MGM Resorts International is shining a light on the latest tactics being used by organized hackers to exploit large companies. What lessons can other businesses learn from these attacks? We're going to discuss the MGM fallout on this episode of Today in Tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Today in Tech. I'm Keith Shaw. Joining me on the show today is Ben Smith. He is the field CTO for NetWitness. Uh, Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks so much, Keith. And I want to say, like, NetWitness is a security company, so you are familiar with a lot of the the incidents that have been happening recently, correct? Yes, absolutely. We're in the threat detection and response space. We've been in that space supporting security operations centers for more than 20 years, believe it or not. Uh, so take us through what we know about uh, either from media reports or discussions that you've had with with some other security officials about um, how this attack went down and, and, and maybe why it went down. Yeah, so the MGM attack is is one of several that we've seen recently that's affecting one or more of these Las Vegas casinos. And the how it went down appears in hindsight to be pretty straightforward, Keith. Mm-hmm. Uh, like most organizations, especially today in a post-pandemic world where you've got people who are working remotely, help desks are there to help organizations and people in those organizations, whether they're on-site or remote, uh, get access to the sensitive data that they need to do their day-to-day job. So it appears what happens is the threat actors in this case did some rudimentary research probably on LinkedIn, the world's largest social media network for workers, uh, got some information about one or more workers and then called into the MGM help desk posing as that end user Mm -hmm. and asked for assistance to set or reset that user's password. Uh, We don't know, hasn't been publicized what those procedures are like. Uh, Some organizations make that fairly easy. Some organizations make that a little harder. But however, MGM had that set up. Uh, that access was granted, that account was reset, and as a result, those credentials for that one user were then put into the hands of that threat actor. Okay, and, and the threat actor, then, yep, go yeah, ahead. Well, then, then once they had that access, do we know uh, exactly what they did? Were they able to just basically have free reign within the company's networks? Hasn't been publicized yet. Yeah. It's a common attack vector to try and target uh, highly privileged users. So users with special administrative privileges. We don't know if that mm-hmm. was the case here, but we do know that it was through that single account that the threat actor was later able to insert malware uh, to potentially encrypt the environment. This was definitely a ransomware attack that has been publicized publicly. Right. Uh, and so we don't know if there were other accounts that were compromised along the way. My guess is probably so. Uh, but usually it just takes one account. Uh, and again, we don't know. It hasn't been publicized as to was this an administrator's account? Was this more of a frontline account? My guess would be if I were that threat actor, I would try and target somebody uh, that would, would have management privileges, maybe somebody who's a system administrator from an IT perspective, somebody that at least from the outside looks like they have some extra access that could be useful to me as I'm trying to move through their environment. Okay, and um, and we don't know yet if, if, if this attempt where they called into the help desk was their first attempt or if they had tried with a number of other either people or, or kept, you know, maybe they targeted a bunch of different people uh, and then somehow got to the, to the one that gave them access, correct? 
That that's correct. We yeah. don't know if this was a, a one and done or multiple uh, attempts. One of the things that multiple attempts typically will tip off a victim to, if you have ten different attempts from ten different people in a very short amount of time, that's probably going to be something that doesn't resemble normal what we would call baseline behavior in yeah. the environment. So my guess is uh, it was uh, maybe the first time they did it, maybe the second time. Uh, after after you see that type of request come in repeatedly from different users over a compressed amount of time, that's usually a red flag. And uh, and a lot of this information that we're getting came from the hacking group itself. It was uh, it was it was it Scattered Spider? That was the name of the group that that announced this, or was it a subset of that? I I, I lose track sometimes of these these hacking groups. You know, sometimes they lose track of themselves. But uh, yeah, Scattered Spider is one of the groups. Uh, Aleph is another group name that's been associated with this particular attack. It's Mm -hmm. still unclear if those are the same or if they're just affiliated groups with one another. But you you put your finger on something that's kind of new and distinctive and important here, certainly versus what we've seen in the ransomware space just maybe two or three years ago. And that is... Uh, these threat actors, yes, are are not just carrying out the attacks and maybe secretly negotiating to try and get some sort of a ransom that's paid. More and more of these attackers are very media savvy. They are getting out in front of the story during the negotiations, which you would think is maybe not something you would want to do. Uh, but if you are the threat actor and you're negotiating with a victim and the victim is not paying up, Many of these threat actors have said, well, just like the victim is putting out press releases, maybe if they're publicly held, they've got to do something with the SEC. We're going to have our own press releases and tell our side of the story. Yeah. So we're starting to see that a lot more frequently with these attacks. And that's exactly what happened here. Can, can you think, can you um, uh, speculate on why they might be doing this, why they're becoming more media savvy? Yeah, I, I think it's for two reasons primarily, Keith. The, the first is the, the dollars and cents reason. If I think I can uh, apply additional leverage to you as a victim, uh, maybe making all this public, you want to tell your story if you're the victim. If you're in a regulated industry, you might be forced to tell your story on mm-hmm. a certain time basis. But I want to have control if I'm the victim of that narrative. A threat actor realizes that by disrupting that victim's narrative, they're going to have even more leverage. And if my goal as a threat actor is to extract money from you, uh, I've got a little more power. The second reason, and I think maybe even the more important reason in this attack, Keith, is there are not dozens or hundreds, there might even be thousands of these threat actors or threat actors groups that are out there today. And some of them are highly complex criminal organizations that are operating as a business and others might be uh, lone wolves. Uh, But there's a sense of pride Mm -hmm. and a sense of ownership as it relates to each one of these attacks. So we were just talking about the distinction between uh, Scattered Spider uh, and one of the other groups or several of the other groups that are out there. Uh, if, uh, If you're this attacker over here and the press thinks it was this other attacker, that's one reason for the actual attacker to step in and say, no, 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 I'm beating my chest. Yeah. It was me. Yeah. I'm the one who did this. I'm the one who accomplished this. So well, there's a sense of a sense of pride, ownership. They they want the world to know that they've got the skills uh, and they've got the information. But at the same time, you would think that with criminal organizations and hackers that they wouldn't want to kind of beat their chest because that shines a spotlight on them 
and you know law enforcement might have the tools to go after someone um but maybe that's a different attitude you know i grew up you know uh many many years ago when that was probably the case where you didn't want to reveal your crimes but you know is it just because they can get away with it now or they think they can get away with it or or they are getting away with it yeah i, I think i think you're absolutely right you know, we we don't want to overlook the fact that because this is all carried out across the internet usually crossing jurisdictions, right? So if the attacker and the victim were both physically contained within the United States, I think you would not see so much of this chest beating Mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. But because so many of these attackers are outside of the U.S., and to be frank, many of the victims are not in the U.S. either, uh, it's harder to, to provide what we call attribution. Who is the actual source of this attack? That hurts us from an investigative perspective. It hurts us from a prosecutorial perspective. Laws are different in different countries. So I think what you're seeing is exactly as you've characterized it, Keith, we're, we're seeing uh, behaviors that we would not expect. You know, Why would you want to have that spotlight shine on yourself as a criminal organization? It's because they know that it's very difficult to attribute behavior, even if they're stepping up and saying, hey, it's me, that, that's a reflection of the confidence that even though I'm putting that spotlight on myself, you're not going to be able to catch me. Yeah. And and these groups are getting a lot more organized and struck. They have a, a better structure maybe than they've had a few years ago or in the early days of hacking where you just figure it's a it's a it's one or two people in a basement somewhere. Um, ha, how have the different types of groups um, evolved and you know are they becoming more businesslike or are they still following an organized crime type structure well we're talking about something that i really think is is maybe the most important point if you are on the front lines in cybersecurity today whether it's ransomware or other types of attacks and it's how should we view these threat actors these other organizations whether you want to characterize them as individuals or organizations The most important advice that I typically will give out in my consulting conversations is we don't want to overlook the fact that these threat actors are running their own businesses. Mm -hmm. Just like you're running a business today, you care about profitability, you care about staffing, you've outsourced certain functions like maybe a help desk, like maybe some other uh, resources internally. Guess what? The bad guys are also running businesses like yours where they have staffing concerns, they have business plans, they have profitability targets, they outsource some of their own technology. Uh, Several years ago, probably five years ago, is when I first saw a ransomware pop-up that had a link at the bottom. The ransomware was saying, pay us in Bitcoin, and there was a hyperlink at the bottom of the dialogue that appeared to say, if you don't know how to get Bitcoin, (laughs) click here, and our help desk, seriously, our help desk will assist you. And you click on the link and you are taking to uh, a, a legitimate help desk company that has been hired by this criminal organization. So the sooner that all of us good guys in the world, Keith, realize that we are fighting against businesses, mm-hmm. that's going to help us inform how we should think about how we approach them. It, they are much more organized, certainly, than they have been in the past. Uh, there are complete ecosystems, in yeah. fact. Uh, it's unusual that you would have a single organization that creates the malware, implants the malware, extracts the money. Uh, usually it's a collection of different technologies. Uh, and like all supply chains, as they have matured over time, there are more and more sources that feed, whether it's code or processes, into that business process. 
uh, makes it easier for threat actors, even relatively inexperienced threat actors, to launch an attack. Now, do you get a sense that companies that you work with are still under the assumption that any type of attacker would be you know, uh, a lone individual or a small group rather than these types of organized? Or is, is the attitude now of, okay, yes, we understand this? I think we've still got some room to improve in the industry, Keith, um, uh, probably somewhere in the middle. Most mature organizations that have maybe an in-house security operations center or SOC uh, that have specific functions, like uh, not just a, a level one analyst who's doing triage of all these cyber incidents that are coming in, but maybe they're doing threat hunting where they're proactively looking around primarily the network. The network really is the ground truth of everything that's happening in your environment. Yeah. Uh, most mature organizations realize because they have been hit uh, more than once in all likelihood by more than one of these organizations, uh, there are enough organizations that are out there, Keith, it, that uh, many of these organizations have left behind uh, telltale signs. In the cybersecurity space, we refer to these as indicators of compromise or mm -hmm. IOCs. And that can represent something as straightforward as an IP address that was uh, confirmed as being involved in a prior attack. So if I see that IP address on my network, maybe that's a reason to, to raise a red flag. Uh, bad guys leave clues behind uh, every time. You just have to know where and how to look for them. Uh, and uh, as we advise our customers, it's in that network traffic, that packet capture yeah. that has all of the information that doesn't just show you how the bad guys got in, maybe to infect a single machine and then move laterally from here to here to here. It can show you the full progression of that attack. All right. I want to get back to the, the MGM hack for, uh, for a second. What were some of the things that you noticed that um, in terms of MGM's response that indicated that they were following an incident response plan? Were you able to pick up some, some clues? Because obviously they didn't come out and say, yes, and then we did this, this, and this. Um, but I think having an incident response plan and how they reacted to it are something we can see, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we, we can see that first and foremost in the, in the media response that MGM got out in front of. They, uh, they recognized that they needed to uh, bring the story, the pieces of the story that they were comfortable sharing mm -hmm. as soon as possible. That's a classic step out of uh, a good incident response playbook. Uh, I can tell you, uh, much to my regret, and I think much to the regret of many organizations today, while a lot of organizations have incident response plans, and if you're coming at this strictly from an IT perspective, think about a business continuity or disaster recovery, BC or DR, as kind of being similar plans to an yeah. incident response plan. Uh, a lot of organizations have these plans, and maybe they are required to have those plans. Maybe they are thinking a little forward, and they say, we need to stay ahead of these issues. I can tell you that my favorite question to ask folks when I'm first meeting them is, you know, tell me about your incident response plan. We've got one. And then the second follow-up question is usually where the rubber meets the road. And that is, when did you last update this plan? Or when did you last exercise this plan? Just yeah. because you have a great plan that was written down that you looked at and thought about and mentally scoped out 12 months ago. If it's older than 12 months, I can guarantee that plan is out of date. And if it hasn't been exercised, even if it's less than 12 months old, if you've not exercised that plan, something that we might call in my space a tabletop exercise where you 
bring up the plan and you yeah. bring up all the players and you have a sample scenario that everybody walks through. I have never been involved with the tabletop exercise that did not produce a new finding of something that was missing in that incident response plan. Right, right. So that IR, incident response plan, you're absolutely right. Media uh, is part of that plan. It's not just a technical remediation. This is another place where I see organizations sometimes fall down. BC, DR, IR, incident response. Uh, let's uh, let's clean up the mess and make sure that we can move forward. But we forget about the fact that there are legal implications of an attack. Uh, the board might need to be notified. There's a marketing component. There's a PR slash media component. There's lots of other groups outside of the technical teams that need to be involved. And sometimes these really solid IR plans that I see completely overlook that. Yeah. So your point in MGM's case, I think they were working off of a good plan. We saw them come out with that press side early on. And right. I think that's a sign of a mature organization. And didn't you didn't you tell me when we were talking before the show that that the having them go analog for a lot of things like a lot of the the hotel employees ended up going to pen and paper for checking in and checking out uh was kind of part of that that incident response plan or was that more of a well we can't do anything about our computers because they're infected so let's go to this plan b it it, it did so, feel like maybe that plan b was part of the incident response plan yeah, we can't state definitively yeah. that hasn't been publicized. Uh, I think that any good incident response plan does exactly that, Keith. It recognizes that there will be a scenario where maybe uh, if I'm a hotel and part of my job is bringing uh, folks in to check into their rooms, there might be a time. Might even be completely independent, by the way, of a cyber attack. It could be an IT outage. This is where that type of plan response would fit better into a business continuity or disaster recovery plan, but having something that recognizes that you're not going to have access to the same systems uh, that you normally do, did they have something like that in their plan? Quite possibly. Uh, I, I think uh, it's also equally likely, Keith, that uh, that they were scrambling at that point. Uh, that uh, you know, it's un it's unusual today in the the world that you and I live in to think about you. Know, could we be doing things uh, in an analog fashion? You and I would not be able to have this conversation we're having right now if, if, <laughs> if the network was down, for example. Right, right. So uh, we we don't know is the quick answer to your question. I suspect uh, it, if it wasn't part of that plan, it should be. And it always is a part of a good, mature incident response plan to assume that there's going to have to be some analog component. If, if, if you had to give a grade based on what you know right now, could you grade MGM on this or would it be an incomplete? Uh, if, if you, I would, uh, so I, I, my, my grade would encompass not just the response, but, but how they actually, um, interacted with the threat actor. And I, I think this is an above average grade. Let me leave it, leave it at that. I won't okay. give it a letter grade. One of the new pieces of information, Keith, that, that has come out just in the last week or so is apparently MGM did not pay the ransom. Right. Uh, and that's a new piece of information, certainly something that was not reported initially. That follows, by the way, for our U.S. listeners on this podcast, that follows the FBI guidance not to pay the ransom. But it's hard as an organization when you sit down and you do you run the numbers and you say, well, it sounds like a really big number they're asking for, but this is the number over here and this is the number that it's going to cost for us to, to recover everything. So sometimes it's a very simple economic exercise. Yeah. So the fact that they were not just in communication with the ransomware actors that apparently reports suggest they did not pay, 
Um, that's good. I, so that's one reason why I would say this is uh, above average. They were in regular contact. One of the things that the threat actors did put out, uh, and this is before the piece of news that you and I are talking about right now, yeah. the threat actors expressed some public frustration around the fact that they felt like MGM was not being as interactive as they, the threat actors, were hoping for. Uh, so this suggests that you know, maybe the threat actors felt that there was money to be made there and they weren't getting to it quite quickly enough. Yeah. And what, what's so, interesting about this whole this whole thing, too, is that at the same time, reports came out that Caesars, which is a compete, you know, one of the competitors to MGM and another big casino uh, conglomerate in Las Vegas, they were also hacked. But we don't know if it was the same group or was it the same group. But the news came out that they did pay the ransom. And so you had a, 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 you know, do we pay, do we not pay scenario playing out in front of us right, right here? Yeah, we, we absolutely do. And it's not, it's not a straightforward equation. Even if it's the same organization that maybe has been hit more than one time, the decision you made last time might not be the same decision you make this time. Uh, the, uh, the, the Caesars attack that you talk about, yes, the public reporting indicates that there was a ransomware payment that was made. One other thing that relates to this point, Keith, as it yeah. goes back to the MGM attack, was the threat actors in this case actually announced as part of their first kind of public, here's what we did. One of the facts that they let out was that MGM apparently took a lot of their own systems offline before the ransomware actually set in mm -hmm. and took effect. And this is a, a very wise, mature approach. You're trying to get ahead of the problem, especially if you're not sure where the problem is. Somebody made the decision to say, it's going to be really painful. It's going to have an impact if we're unable to easily check in our guests. Uh, it's going to be a monetary impact if I'm on the casino floor because some or many of those machines might not be available. We still think that it makes more sense to take those systems offline so that we can safely perform an investigation. Yeah. And that's happened in some other attacks. There was a very high-profile uh, infrastructure attack over the last two or three years uh, where commonly it was believed uh, publicly that it was a ransomware attack, which it was, but the outage that was associated with that attack was wholly due to the victim saying to itself, you know what, we're just going to take everything offline uh, before the ransomware has an opportunity to spread throughout our environment. So that, again, I think is the sign of a mature organization. They understand that there are pains that uh, they want to incur, self-inflict, if you yep, will. Yep. And in this case, if the threat actors are to be believed, because that's the source of this information, MGM did proactively take some of those critical systems offline uh, in an effort to slow down the, uh, the threat actors. Right. Now, in, in your experience with uh, companies that uh, activate an incident response plan, do most of these uh, responses get into the, the the panic stage, or do they have a more careful, you know, measured response? Maybe the you know because you're you're viewing them or you're experiencing that they might feel more measured. But from an outsider looking in, could they observe that this might be a panic thing, or or does panic set in at some point? I think panic is natural, even for the most mature organizations, <laughs> even for the best, best documented organizations. Uh, because if you're in an organization that um, you, you might feel that this is an existential attack, i.e. if you don't solve this, you might be out of business. Yeah, That's not an exaggeration. 
Uh, and even if you're not out of business, there might be such a huge reputational or a brand impact. That is just another layer of stress that gets layered on the incident response team and the executives that are managing the response. So uh, it's uh, there's always a whiff of panic. Uh, and, and let me be more optimistic. Let's just say there's a lot of adrenaline uh, when it comes right. to these types of responses. But if you have that written plan, Keith, uh, if you have that checklist, right? We've all heard stories about doctors with checklists make fewer mistakes, pilots with checklists make fewer mistakes. An incident responder with a checklist is going to make fewer mistakes because even your most seasoned incident responder is going to feel that stress, yep. is going to feel that pressure, and is prone, because we're all human beings, prone to make a mistake. That's one more reason why a current exercised comprehensive incident response or IR plan is absolutely critical. That's that's wonder that you know one of the things I wonder about is is the first page of any incident response plan in bold type in all caps don't panic. Like that should be <laughs> your for, your first checkbox should be don't panic, right? It it should be. If uh if I'm uh, reaching into the last century, I think that was a Douglas Adams, the, yeah. uh, the great novelist, one one of his go-to lines. So yeah, that's great advice. Uh maybe have a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy first page with right. don't panic right or or the uh the thing that they do in the uk which is keep calm and carry on or keep calm you'll get through this yeah yeah and and this this speaks to i think the importance of you don't want to fight that fire alone so even if you are that organization that has multiple individuals on a security operations team or an incident response team just like a good doctor is not going to self-diagnose uh, his or herself. There's some something feels badly. I think it's this, but I need to get a second set of eyes. Someone who is not directly involved. We find with a lot of organizations, that's a time where in a perfect world, they've already got a relationship with some other company who does incident response, something that we would call an incident response retainer. So you can pick up the red phone and say, hey, something is happening. I need help. Even though I've got experts on my side of the phone. Yeah. I need you to kind of parachute in here. So having that external set of eyes, and for some organizations, Keith, believe it or not, these retainers, it's not uncommon for an organization to have a retainer with this external player and a retainer with some other external player because the more brains you bring in in the middle of this fire, mm -hmm. the more brains, the more eyes, the hope and the expectation is, the quicker, the easier you're going to be able to put out that fire. So even for most many mature organizations who have the staffing and they have the processes in place, our go-to recommendation, and most mature organizations do this, they will have one or more companies uh, at the end of that bat phone uh, ready to pick up and help. Uh, and for those companies that aren't in the middle of an incident, for example, uh, there are services uh, uh, around uh, doing discovery yeah. in an environment uh, to help you kind of figure out where are the weak spots in my environment uh, that gets back, at least in my world, to the importance of being able to look at the network uh, and all the network traffic, because that really is where the badness happens and where the solutions frequently emerge. Yeah. And, and I, OK, so I want to get back to uh, the way that these attackers said they got in. Um, we did talk a little bit about it. it was an employee that went to LinkedIn or someone that went to a LinkedIn, found the employee and was able to get a password reset, uh, you know, and then get access to this. Um, but you, you know, you mentioned stress earlier uh, when we we're talking about something else, and that's a, something that that we could have that, that could have been involved in the the attempt to get in. Um, 
I think a lot of us on the outside looked at the the response or the the announcement of hey we got in via LinkedIn and said oh man how could how could this help desk be so dumb I you know I, that would never happen in our company because you know I I've taken six six different security awareness training things and I've got the certificates um, but talk about some of the other factors that may have been involved we don't know for sure but um, just so that we can have a more open mind about um, how the, you know either this help desk or if it was a third party how they got tricked like there are some other tricks other than just someone calling up and going, hey, I want our password reset. There, there, there are, and and you know, I, I worked a help desk very early in my IT career, and I, I'm very familiar. Y- years, if not decades later, remembering hearing pain, stress, worry coming at me through that phone line because something was broken that they thought I could help with. The challenge is because we're talking about human beings. We're talking about a human being who's ostensibly an employee mm-hmm. and a human being who's ostensibly on the help desk. Whether or not that help desk is in-house or outsourced is really less relevant here. Even if that help desk rep has his or her own checklist, these are the things I need to ask for. If there's a lot of emotion coming through that phone, uh, it's the same advice, Keith, that we've we've seen in that security training that you just mentioned. Uh, a phishing email that comes in, or let's just call it a mysterious email that comes in, yep. and there's a time pressure. You need to do this right now or something will happen. Uh, whether that arrives in an email, whether that arrives in the context of a phone conversation, humans are naturally susceptible to uh, wanting to help this other human, uh, maybe even uh, in contradiction to this list of policies. Yeah. So I'll emphasize again, we don't know exactly what that interaction was like, but I can tell you as a prior help desk rep, when somebody is angry, anxious, upset, maybe they're crying, uh, you want to help them. And uh, that's one way to kind of short circuit a process uh, that uh, is frequently hard to do because again, there's human beings on either side of that. And I would argue that that, uh, audio or video is more emotional and more you're more likely to drop your guard against something versus just this email that comes in and you, you, you know, you can, you can sort of be, um, you know, stoic when you see it, an email, but if someone's calling and you're on the phone going, Oh my God, I got to get this presentation and immediately and I can't get my password in it. You know, I've got a deadline in five minutes and you know, all of that, you know, ah, you're going to get, you're going to get someone to drop their guard. You, you are, you are. And, and because we're human beings, it's only natural to do that. So that, that is to, to use the phrase I think I heard you say, you know, that, that's a shortcut or a short circuit. That's a way to try and expedite that transaction to the threat actor's benefit. However, that might have happened or not, even if that wasn't the case here, right? Maybe there was a policy in place. Uh, I can tell you in prior organizations that I have worked, if I were that end user calling into the help desk, uh, there's some information like my location. That's probably on my LinkedIn profile. So yep. the right actor would probably have that. There's information like my employee ID, which is probably harder to come by, but not necessarily impossible. And in one of my prior organizations, I also had to provide information about my management chain. So I would be asked by the help desk rep, you know, thank you for giving me your location and your ID number. Uh, can you tell me who your manager is? That's really kind of hard to do, especially if you're that external threat actor, maybe leveraging LinkedIn, and Mm -hmm. I see that this person is in this location, but there might be thousands of other employees at that location. 
So the more of these questions that you can kind of layer on top of each other, it ultimately converts Keith into a risk management conversation. You're never going to be 100% sure. Even if I answer 10 of the questions that you give to me, you're the help desk rep, I'm the person who's calling in, you might not be able to get to 100% assurance that yeah. I am Smith, but you're going to get to a point where you're highly confident that it's me and you're going to be able to proceed with whatever the request is. This is probably what happened uh, in the MGM case. There was one or more questions that were posed. Those questions were satisfactorily answered. Uh, even though that wasn't the actual employee, uh, that may have been how this attack started. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to give them a little bit more credit than than I did I initially. Think- I, I think so. This this was not a lackadaisical help desk. Uh, this was not somebody who failed to do his or her job. This was a, a motivated threat actor who uh, probably has prior experience in other attacks and realizes that sometimes help desks are the weak link. Yeah. Uh, and especially, you know, this, this is, again, something that is much more prevalent today. We, hel- we had help desks before the pandemic, but we also had a lot more people working in an office. And it would be very easy five years ago, if I was calling into the help desk, I know the guy, you know, he works two floors for me. He's going to walk over to my desk to help me. That's really not the description that we have today. So it's a lot easier. Uh, It's a lot more risky, if you will. And that's why uh, maybe a separate conversation, right, is uh, how to think about building your remote help desk, uh, ways to confirm identities. Are there some things that maybe could be fully automated in terms of that password reset? Uh, there's absolutely technology out there that doesn't even require a human being that can be manipulated right. by picking up the phone at the help desk. Uh, there's other ways to to automate that. Uh, but um, I, I think we should cut them some slack uh, because uh, being on the help desk is a tough job. There's a reason I don't work on the help desk anymore. <laughs> there's a reason it's entry level for a lot of people too. <laughs> It's it's tough. It's, yeah. it's a high burnout. It's a high burnout role. There's a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. Uh, and these incident responders that we were talking about, if you want to think of it, they are kind of the frontline help desk for the security operations center. Yeah, That's also a high pressure, uh, high burnout role. Uh, and uh, it's a challenge. Yeah. And and so the, I want to talk a little bit about the these, these the groups. And we've already talked about that they're, they're highly organized. Um, but their tactics are also changing in in who they are targeting, correct? Like we used to see them go after uh, individual consumers. You know, you would you you would install malware on your system because you clicked a bad link somewhere, and then they they then ask you for ransomware, or they're going to delete all your photos, for example, and things like that. But now they're going after large companies and threats with with the ransomware, correct? Like, how is why has that changed, or how is that changing? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think it's changed in a couple of important respects. Uh, like all good bank robbers, you want to rob the banks where the money is <laughs> because that's where the money is, yeah. right? So if I'm a ransomware threat actor, I'm probably going to be targeting my collection of tools towards an organization that I think can actually pay the bill. Uh, I uh, I saw I saw a news article just before we got onto this call, Keith around a uh, completely different set of attack actors who had focused on several different populations on the island of Taiwan. Uh, And um, there was uh, one gentleman who woke up one morning and discovered ransomware on his personal machine, and he was being prompted for $400, or the equivalent of US $400. And he wrote the ransomware operator and said, hey guys, I I don't even make that much in a month. Are you really going to try and get this from me? 
And the bad guys wrote back and said, yeah, actually, no, we're, we're not going to extract that from you. We made a mistake. We, we, uh, we didn't realize that uh, everybody that we were targeting in your geography uh, didn't have a lot of money. That's basically how that transaction went. So in that happy ending case, they gave him the decryption key and it was no harm, no foul. The bad guys realized that there's only a limited amount of time each day. And if I have one or more targets that I'm pretty confident um, is going to be extremely uncomfortable, like... Uh, a worldwide casino with a huge brand yeah. and thousands of individuals, not just in Las Vegas, but in other locations that are, are inside my facilities every day, that might be a particularly attractive target, especially because it's a casino. Therefore, there's probably a little extra money there. So the bad guys, I think, have gotten smarter about targeting victims that they think they can pay. I, I was going to say uh, that, that the hackers be- have a heart, you know, the hackers finally get a heart of gold. Um, but I think your point is, is, is better where it's more about, you know, cost and value and time, you know, needed to get the money go after, go where the money is. Um, yeah. Why, why do I, why do I want to spend a week trying to get the same amount of money that I could otherwise get in two hours? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, and then I guess if you're a victim, you can, you can play the emotion card just, just the same way that they, they might try to play it on you. You can. You absolutely can. There are businesses, believe it or not, Keith, businesses that serve to be the intermediators between victims and ransomware operators. It's almost like a hostage negotiation. Or a concierge, right? Yeah. Or or concierge. I'll handhold you through the process. You're absolutely (laughs) right. But uh, it there are there are professionals out there that that serve as those intermediaries to try and uh, conclude that event to the benefit of everybody, especially the victim. Okay. And so is this problem going to get better or worse? Uh, is this just going to be a cost of doing business for many companies that they're going to have to be ready for these uh, on a regular basis? Uh, and I got a follow-up question to that. So, you know, is it going to get better or worse for a lot of these companies? Yeah, it's not, it's not going to get any better until we all disconnect from the internet, Keith. And I, I don't think... <laughs> I don't think that's happening. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen in the future. Yeah, the, the internet uh, is is a wonderful invention and uh, a fantastic way for people to communicate remotely, regardless of where we are. Uh, but it also exposes weaknesses, and it's these weaknesses uh, around things like remote work. Uh, I know in in my business, we've seen a lot more companies move to a completely different architecture, a, a secure access service edge or SASE, SASE. Yeah which bottlenecks all that traffic. But even in that case, there's significant challenges with kind of retaining visibility, especially into that network traffic. So we've done some R&D work in that space. But um, until we all unplug from the internet, uh, I think it's going to get worse because as threat actors continue to evolve, as the good guys continue to figure out, okay, I know how to recognize, we talked about IOCs or instant uh, indicators of compromise earlier. I know how to recognize, I think it's this threat actor. I know they're going to be using these tools. So here's how I can defend myself. You know, both sides get smarter and smarter and smarter. Uh, and uh, it's only going to ratchet up like any good arms race. It, all right. So my, so then my follow-up co- comp, uh, question would be, is this, high prof- is this attack high profile enough for law enforcement to get more serious about tracking these guys down? Do you feel like that, anybody's going to get caught for this MGM hack or is it going to take even a higher profile case for 
everyone to start cooperating a lot more. I guess we I have think, to solve I world peace, I guess, first. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we can do that on our second interview. Yeah. We'll, we'll figure that out. The good news is that cooperation is already occurring today. Yeah. Uh, in this, this calendar year, there have been two or three major uh, busts, if I can con- uh, refer to them that way, where the FBI has worked with peer organizations in other countries mm-hmm. to locate and shut down specific threat actors. So the law enforcement cooperation is there. Again, we don't know in the case of the casino that we're talking about if law enforcement was involved. I would be shocked if they were not involved, given the size of the organization. Right. Law enforcement, uh, just like the scenario you and I were talking about where uh, there's not enough time in the day to, to extract this money if I'm the bad guys, uh, law enforcement has to pick and choose its battles as well. And if a law enforcement entity, whether it's the FBI or any other entity here in the world, recognize common patterns, hey, we've gotten reports about three different attacks over the last week, they seem to share these same characteristics, that's probably going to raise it up on the uh, interest meter uh, and and hopefully uh, get it to a point where it can be snuffed out. So I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that Uh, The fact that these ransomware attacks are continuing is due to law enforcement not paying attention, law enforcement not operating. Okay. Neither of those things are true. Uh, Law enforcement is absolutely in the loop and realizes what's going on. Um, The FBI, in fact, has a fantastic program called InfraGuard, G-A-R-D is how that ends, which is a public-private partnership so that, for example, I know the phone number of my local FBI agent because I've met her in person. Mm -hmm. And the whole goal behind that program, whether it's me or anybody else who's enrolled in the program, is to be more comfortable reaching out to the FBI because the FBI wants to hear from you if you think that there's something going on in your environment. So law enforcement is absolutely involved, but the fact that these attacks are still occurring, Keith, is a telltale signal that even the world's most advanced law enforcement still struggles against these attacks. Uh, Do you have a gut feeling about whether or not they're going to catch these guys? Uh, I think yes. Uh, the, okay. the gut feeling is yes. I, I think they they will be identified. They will be caught. We talked at the very beginning of this conversation. There's there's even a little uh, gray area around you. Is it this group yeah, or that yeah, yeah. group? Or maybe they're affiliated with one another. Uh, the more successful a specific cyber criminal organization is, uh, the more likely that ultimately they are going to rise to the point where not just one government but multiple governments say, "Well, that's that's enough. Yeah, we've got to we've got to find a way to either slow them down, identify where their bottlenecks are. That's a great way, by the way, to to try and figure out that business operation that they have. If if uh, if uh, you figure out if you're a government or organization, you figure out that maybe the weak spot for the bad guys is how they ultimately monetize. Mm-hmm. How do they extract money out of that? That might be a natural weak spot in the bad guys' business process yeah. to target. So right. I think that um, I think that it's going to continue to be a challenge, but the good guys are paying attention. Let's be clear on that. Okay. All right. Uh, that's all the time we're going to have uh, today, Ben. Thank you so much for, uh, for talking with us about uh, this topic. It's uh, some great stuff here. It's my pleasure, Keith. Thanks. And that's all the time we have for today's episode. Don't forget to like this video, subscribe to the channel, add any comments that you have below. Join us every week for new episodes of Today in Tech. I'm Keith Shaw. Thanks for watching.